welcome to This Week in Ringer Culture. I'm Liz Kelly bringing you the highlights from the Ringer Podcast Network. This is our last roundup of 2017, but we're still putting up a ton of good stuff on the site before the year officially ends. We've added to our 2017 year in review like the most underrated albums, worst collaborations, and even best sweaters of 2017. You can check it all out on theringer.com. So we finished last week's roundup talking Star Wars, and we are starting this show with the same. On the big picture this week, Sean Fennessy talked with Star Wars The Last Jedi director Ryan Johnson about introducing new elements in a pre-existing universe. World building is a big part of what you do, not necessarily in maybe the Marvel Cinematic Universe sense, but you're creating a new language at times and creating a new uh, history or a new future. Yeah. You're obviously entering established mythology here. Yeah. What was it like for you to try to figure out how to build your own worlds inside of these stories? Well, I mean, for me, I, I guess because it was something where, you know, the world of it is kind of me trying to capture what Star Wars felt like, what those movies felt like to me and what they were to me when I was growing up. So I guess, first of all, everyone's going to have a slightly different interpretation of that, you know, that I guess. And that to me, Tonally, at least, defines defines what Star Wars always was for me. But then there's a lot more. Obviously, you know, it's it's a big, complicated question, and that's one that I kind of answered just by by making this movie. This is kind of what Star Wars feels like to me, I guess. You know? Did you have to channel your 13-year-old self? Yeah, you always had to check back. It was an invaluable resource, you know, having um, that sort of internal compass of does this feel right to me. And it's tricky because every single fan has a different compass because everyone grew up also in a slightly different time. I was, you know, I, I was 10 years old when Return of the Jedi came out, I think. So that was, I was in prime age for that movie. So, um, so, but then as I became an adult, Empire was the one that I got more and more into. But of course, New Hope was like the very first one I was into with toys. And so all this imagery from that is deeply embedded. Anyway, it's, it's just, it's, it's, a very personal thing. I know it's different for every fan, um, but I, I had to make it personal. I had to kind of make my version of, of what felt right in it. When you were writing or making the film, would you go back and watch those films or did you try to have a little bit of personal distance? Oh no, I would go back and, and, and rewatch them. I, I know them so well, you know, it's not like I had to refresh my memory with them, but it was, I did find it was good to go back and just get the spirit of them more than anything else. Um, and inevitably that was the thing that would surprise me when you go back and watch them, whether it's, you know, the banter on the Death Star during their mission between all three of them or, um, Han, Leia and 3PO on the Falcon and Empire, the, the sense, the, the way that they, uh, always have that slightly, uh, almost, almost like, you know, uh, I don't know, virgin, never tipping over, but verging on screwball sense of, of, of fun and banter. The, the way that that is never far apart from our characters in, in the original trilogy. Um, it was good to always remind yourself of that. Yeah. Your movie has a great comic tone mm-hmm. and it's something that people have really noticed, which is in force awakens, but it seems like it's pitched up a little bit here. Yeah. Were you worried about any pushback when you were writing the story about what you could and couldn't get in there tonally? Uh, no, I, I just tried to make it feel, feel right to me, I guess. I mean, I think there is probably a lot of humor in it at, at very intentionally, you know, and I know that, 
Uh, you know, I, I'm sure there'll be some folks who feel like there's too much. I don't. I feel like if you can't have fun in a Star Wars movie, what the hell are you in a Star Wars movie for? Yeah. But, but I get, I mean, you know, different people want different things from Star Wars movies. And if it, if, you know, uh, for me, I, I don't know. I, I, I really enjoyed, especially because I knew we were going to be going to some darker, more intense places because I knew we were going to be, sitting on an island for a big chunk of the movie talking about religion. You know, I, I wanted there to be a buoyancy to the movie that um, kept it light on its feet and kept it feeling like a Star Wars movie. Who was the character you were most excited to sink your teeth into? Kylo Ren. Yeah. I Tell was, me more about Well, that. first of all, Adam is just one of my favorite young actors working today. But I mean, you could, I could say that about any one of the cast, you mm-hmm. know, Boyega and Oscar and Daisy, everyone. But um, the fact that with... Kylo, JJ, and and Larry and Michael created this character who I don't know the the, the potential just seems so great you know to to dig into him uh, the fact that he wants to be Vader but isn't the fact that there's a complexity and kind of a emotional um, vulnerability there but that he still is a absolutely despicable guy who you hate coming into this because he killed Han Solo. Um, and the fact that we have a perfect proxy of Ray to to come at him with, um, I don't know. I was kind of I was rubbing my hands together. I couldn't wait to get into Kylo. Moving from Star Wars to their parent company, Disney announced on December 14th that they've acquired 21st Century Fox in a move that looks to put them in competition with other streaming services. On the Bill Simmons podcast, Bill spoke with Stratechery's Ben Thompson about the acquisition. What was the big takeaway for you when you looked at that deal with, oh, this is smart. I love this. It was, it was exactly that. I mean, the, what Netflix came along and did, you know, it, originally everyone viewed it as just another, another outlet, another channel where they could sell their stuff. I mean, they're spending all this money to create this content. If we can sell it to one more place. I think we talked about it once on the podcast earlier this year about yeah. making 30 for 30 and sell it to Netflix and you feel great about it. And you don't realize that Netflix is getting this sort of evergreen content because the nature of content for Netflix is very different. They're not just interested in sort of the first run. They're interested in building a library so that when you go there, you'll stay there. And and it's attractive to all kinds of people who are interested in all kinds of stuff. And the problem is that Disney was based – Disney and all the other you know studios were basically arming a competitor to their best friend, which was the cable companies. Yeah. Because the cable companies basically had this sort of monopoly on in-home entertainment – and then Disney could come along and say, well, if you want people to to sign up, you have to have sports, for example, or you have to have the Disney Channel, and we can charge a really high price for that. And Netflix is there saying, well, you don't have to get cable. You could just watch us instead. And that started playing out, and, and Disney was really stuck with this sort of incredibly profitable, really attractive you know, model, which by the way, Disney made a great deal. Remember 20 years ago, they bought Capital Cities and ABC, which included ESPN at the time. So they were already like, they bought into this game ahead of everyone else the first time. Yeah. And this is almost them catching up where instead of having that cable company in the middle and you're kind of like just using them to get money from customers and then taking all the money, they have to go directly to customers. They have to get people to sign up for their service directly. And that means having more content. It means having exclusive content. And the best way to have lots of your own exclusive content is to own it all. And you're also, you're hurting a, a competitor, which is nice, but I, you know, I look at this, what, where they were five years ago. We've talked about this in this pod. I've talked about this on other pods. I, ESPN was doing so well. You, you, you basically are trying to protect the lead you have instead of 
figuring out all these different ways to grow the lead. The last couple of years, some of the different, you know, the fallbacks they've had and the way some of their competitors have risen and competitors they didn't even realize they were going to have um, made them kind of rethink their strategy and everything. And this was always the best idea. I never understood this when I was there, why, why they didn't have their own version of whatever that they could put 30 for 30 and whatever else they wanted. It was always basically like in 2009, 2010, ESPN Classic was kind of the the playground that we always looked at, and we would send memos for. Here's what could this be a sports movie channel? What is this? This channel that they've it seems like they're going to create now with this library um, that Disney's going to create. It, not only is it a Netflix competitor, it it might actually beat Netflix. The Disney Library combined with the Fox Library, it, this is more than a competitor. I would put them five years from now as kind of the favorite. What do you think? I think that it's a it's going to be a two horse race. Like if this goes through and if it's approved, and obviously there's going to be a lot of sort of antitrust questions about this. But one of the you know sort of arguments why it should be allowed is Netflix is is in such a dominant position right now because you know it's hard looking back four or five years like when Disney sold all their stuff to Netflix in 2012. You could see the outlines of how Netflix could sort of take over everything, but it wasn't really apparent then. But but everything sort of played out as as you might have expected it, and and if you play that forward in, in another five years, five, 10 years, Netflix is this sort of monster that's just buying everything. No one can resist it even more than they are today. And it's yeah. already sort of that case in Hollywood. And, and well, wait, hold case, on. Wait a second, though. They, so in 2012, did Netflix know this was going to happen or was this dumb luck? No, this has been Netflix's plan. I mean, the, what the, what they've done from the beginning is they've taken this this sort of sideways approach to content, where they get they they served a problem that no one was serving, which was people wanted to watch movies and not worry about late fees, and they were movie hounds, and they gave them DVDs, right? And they could do that because DVDs fair use. You, there was the second use doctrine; you couldn't charge for them a second time, and so they built up a customer base and they leveraged that customer base into into the first streaming deal, which is with Stars, and. I think we talked about this last time, but the idea with stars was Netflix. It was so different because instead of only having one of the movies available, whatever stars was showing on TV, yeah. Netflix had all of them available immediately. And that was such a sort of like mind fuck in the, way, right. in the way you like think about content and what matters as far as that stuff goes. And they got more and more customers and then th- they started buying more content and paying more for content. And people were like, Oh, Netflix is in the middle of a content. Well, Netflix just pulled out the checkbook and these Hollywood guys that are so used to, we'll sell to anyone who will buy our stuff. They, they gave it to Netflix. And meanwhile, Netflix starts investing in their original content. And that original content served two purposes. One, it was a differentiated stuff that you wanted to get to was a reason to sign up for Netflix. And then two, as we're seeing now, it built up a base so that when these guys finally woke up and started pulling their stuff from Netflix, it didn't matter nearly as much as it would have mattered five or six years ago. And what Netflix has is this huge customer base. They're over a hundred million, a hundred million subscribers now, and they're all over the world. So they can leverage this stuff all over the place and they just pull and they pull out the checkbook and they buy more stuff, which makes their product more attractive, which makes them more customers, makes their checks bigger. And they're all doing this buying against the future like they're taking on a ton of debt to to finance these shows but it's it's playing out because it's being made up the customers they're acquiring and it's this virtuous cycle that's going on if it keeps going on as it is in 10 years they're going to be just dominant over everyone it's going to be the bundle for everything except for except for sports and now there really is if this goes deal goes through a viable 
counterpoint to that. So I think the future is not that Netflix is doomed by any means, but rather that if this goes through, it'll be Netflix and Disney, and then sports will kind of be on the side, a separate thing. We'll see if it sticks with Disney or not. In our next clip, we're talking music. So Eminem dropped his latest album called Revival on December 15th. So on Damage Control this week, Justin Charity and Cam Collins share their album reviews. Tell me about this album that I listened to two times out of due diligence. Could not tell you a single thing about it except that Beyonce was on there and she need not have been. (laughs) And that's the first track. We're going to end up talking about the politics of this album and a lot of the anti-Trump posturing that Eminem does in this album. Keyword posturing. Posturing. And because I know we're going to get into that, I I will say that musically, let me be a music critic for like five seconds on this podcast. That's all it deserves. Musically. The album is excruciating. It's trash. <laughs> it's excruciating. It's, it's so bad. Eminem is writing the line between two different types of Eminem records that I think people will know Eminem for since the Eminem show. Mm. Um, and then since songs like Love the Way You Lie, which is like, on the one hand, you have the Eminem records that are these big top 40 pop rock Rap ballads. <laughs> ba with the Ba era. <laughs> right. To be honest. And then on the other hand, you have Eminem album cuts, which are these songs that most times don't have hooks and are, that totally feel like gym class. They feel like a rapper rapping just to show you the metaphysical possibilities of rapping and and how much they've trained and gotten their breath control down pat and how they can <laughs> bend words to their will. And he's writing the line between those two types of records. And he, he, he has a lot of those records on his last four or five albums. But this album just feels so long and the mistakes and the missteps feel so pronounced. And Eminem's style of rapping, for one, yes. is very wordy, lyrically dense style of rapping, very aggressive style of rapping. And then his musical sensibilities, which have never been great, <laughs> but his mm. very arena rock rap musical production sensibilities have not sounded more dated and more out of step with what contemporary hip hop sounds like. He sure. could not sound any more incompatible with this sort of trap, trippy SoundCloud mainstream. So here's the thing. Eminem is a white rapper, uh-huh. and it's uncomfortable to talk about sometimes, but white rappers have a different career tract. They have weird, nuanced differences in who their fan bases are over time, whether you're talking about Eminem, whether you're talking about Macklemore, whether you're talking about Mac Miller, whether you're talking about Post Malone, whether you're talking about G-Eazy, Machine Gun Kelly. The way that, the way that white rappers, who, who aren't always novelty white rappers, the way they cultivate fan bases, they can afford to stand out a bit more from the hip-hop mainstream and still sell albums and still make money and still do well on tour beyond just having whatever their breakout or viral single is. And so Eminem is the, he is the godfather of that. He is the godfather of sounding more and more adrift from the hip-hop mainstream every year and yet selling a boatload of albums first week. But how is it an album like this, which, as you point out in your piece, and again here, how is it that he is posturing sort of this anti-Trump thing? Is that alienating his audience? Well, that's a good question. You take Eminem at his word. (laughs) White America is about you. Right. The album, again, it's called Revival, and the, the album rollout began... A couple months ago, and it didn't begin with a single, it began with the freestyle. It began with this BET freestyle 
um, that's sort of informally called the storm, but it's 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 several minutes and it's Eminem on video. And again, it's Eminem on video after a while of people not really seeing Eminem on video, so it right. really seemed like oh, crap, Eminem just came out of nowhere. Okay, he's clearly right, dropping an album. Right, right. So he does this freestyle, and the entire the thesis, the gist of the freestyle is this anti-Trump rant. And in 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 the midst of that freestyle, he has a couple lines where he's saying, "Hey, any of my fans." Who are with Trump? Fuck you! Like, right. That's not. I don't stand for that. I'm. I'm doing this freestyle to let you know that I don't stand for this. Right. Racism's the only thing he's fantastic for, because that's how he gets his rocks off, and he's orange. Yeah, sick tan. That's why he wants us to disband, because he cannot withstand the fact we're not afraid of Trump. That's why he keeps screaming, "Drain the swamp!" Because he's in quicksand. You know, Eminem seems self-conscious about the idea that, sure, he has a lot of white fans who maybe think of him differently than they think of black rappers, even if on more subconscious levels, right. just being like, I only fuck with white rappers, <laughs> which right. um, yeah, Eminem is self-conscious about it, but I don't I don't think he knows what to do about it. He doesn't really have a sense of, you know, he doesn't have a sense of accountability ultimately about his his fan base's politics, I don't think. Yeah, I mean, you're really making me think, because when that freestyle dropped... That freestyle you know, was viral, and lots of people talked about it, I should say. Yeah, it was, viral. it was big. It was a big deal. Right, and it's sort of, as much as I think the last few Eminem albums from the past uh, five or six years have left a lot of people cold, have left a lot of critics cold, right. I think people seeing Eminem come back with the a, a very, again, a very passionate... Uh, and very vulgar <laughs> freestyle right. against Trump was basically the most goodwill Eminem was gonna earn from people in right. terms of rolling out a new Eminem album on Particularly in the moment of why won't Taylor Swift tell us who she voted for? Right. This, this need, <laughs> this need, this real need that thirst. people have. It's not a need, it's a thirst. It is a thirst. People are right. thirsty. I stand corrected. But this, this, this urge that people have that just you need I mean you need someone like Taylor Swift I to be honest it is important to me that Eminem does have this stance next up we have a clip from Black on the Air where Larry Wilmore talks with Fox co-founder and editor-at-large Ezra Klein about the shift in journalistic standards yeah it seems like uh, there's like a loss a little bit of institutional knowledge, you know, in just how systems work. And there's more of a reaction based on positions. It seems like a lot of journalism has has become, you know, rather than reacting to a change in based on institutional knowledge of how systems work. Is that an accurate way to to describe some of this, do you think? I, I struggle with it, to be honest. So, mm-hmm. you know, I never want to be overly nostalgic for where we were. Sure. Or overly optimistic about where we are. Uh, So on the one hand, you know, I'm part of a movement or a trend in journalism when I come in and also the the work I've done in my career where I don't believe in traditionally like quote unquote objective journalism. Mm -hmm. I think I've, I've written for the news section of newspapers. I've written for the opinion section. I've done news analysis and I've seen how the same story can be in every place. The same story, just depending on how you formally write it. Sure. I have often thought that objective sort of like formally even handed stories mm-hmm. often make it too hard to tell the audience what is really going on. Why, why do you um, think so that's that is? One, because if you're if you're doing something like looking at the new tax bill, right, the, right. the Republican tax bill that just passed mm-hmm. 
And you've done the work and, you know, you've really looked into this question of, say, will it increase a deficit or not? Which, by and the way, is kind of hard to do because it, it would, seems like it may be hard to get the actual information of the tax bill, right? Not in the, in this case, I don't think so. In this case, okay. I think we can say with like perfect certainty that it will. Okay. And yet you have to write this story where you have all these folks quoted on the Republican side who in flagrant violation of all the evidence of like literally what the bill says of like what the sure. entire economics profession thinks will happen are saying, well, yeah, the thing will pay for itself, right? Like Paul Ryan says it'll pay for itself. Mitch McConnell says it'll pay for itself. Mm-hmm. And so you're somebody reading um, and you're, you know, on the one hand, here's like some guy at Brookings you've never heard of being quoted. On the other hand, some woman at um, the Heritage who you've never heard of, and they're saying opposite things. It is very, very hard to tell what's true. Mm -hmm. And and so I used to have this line that the problem with the news is it makes it too hard to tell the truth. And the problem with opinion is it makes it too easy to lie. Because on the other hand, in the opinion section, they don't have to do any of the work at all. right? They can just write whatever. Um, And it's like, well, that's my opinion. And so on the one hand, I I take your point. Uh, I do think that we have a lot of pretty bad and ungrounded opinion writing now. And so the the feeling Mm -hmm. that journalism has become suffused with these like reactionary takes, I don't think it's wrong. I think that we've really opened the floodgates on that. And on the other hand, the sort of old world um, where you couldn't say what was going on also had these really, really significant problems. And I think we often ended up misinforming people. Mm -hmm. And I, 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 or I have a lot of agita about all of it. Yeah. Um, did you feel any of that while you were at uh, Washington Post? Um, a bit. I mean, the Washington Post is a truly great organization. There are a couple truly great news organizations out there. The Post and the Times are certainly among them. Yeah. Um, look, did I sometimes have disagreements? Definitely. Uh, on the opinion page, for instance, George Will, who I have a lot of respect for in many ways, mm-hmm. I think writes things about climate change that are like not arguable. They're just untrue. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't. I think that's bad. Right. That's what I mean when I say sometimes I think the opinion pages have lower standards than they should. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the journalism done at the Washington Post is world changing, and the people who are there are many of them are the the absolute best in the field. Uh, so you know, in general, I think that if you're if you're reading the Washington Post, you're doing a pretty good job informing yourself. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Democracy Dies in Darkness is doing a pretty good job right now, especially <laughs> with, uh, I mean, they're leading the way in, on a lot of these sexual assault uh, reporting that's been going on this year and and the allegations, the Post and the Times, I guess, have been in some of the forefront of some of that investigation. Right, and, and that work, I mean, that work is yeah, expensive, right? That, that's something sure. that I think is so important to often say, and it's mm-hmm. why I'm so happy to see people subscribing or uh, getting these digital subscriptions yeah, to the Times, one to of the them. Post. I mean, I pay for it. Yes, yeah, so there you go. As am I. <laughs> well, I, I like to. I want to make sure those things stick around. That's why I pay for those things. You know, uh, and you should, mm-hmm. right? I mean, if you mm-hmm. can't, I think that that is a bad thing about the way we have come to see things on on the internet as being like free, almost by birthright. It's a if you want things thing, to survive yeah. and stick around, you, you got to pay for them. So take that story the Post did mm-hmm. on Ray on Roy Moore yeah. and his sexual predation of teenagers. They sent reporters down there for, I believe, it was about four weeks. And the thing about that story is it might not have panned out. Mm-hmm. If they could not have gotten the right sources, if people wouldn't have talked, those reporters would have been down there for weeks and weeks and weeks. And the Post would be paying their salaries and paying their benefits and doing the whole thing. And then at the end, they might have just been like, you know what? 
we can't publish it. When you're doing real reporting and it happens to us at Vox all the time, sometimes you get something where you're even pretty sure the story is true, but you cannot pin it down. Mm-hmm. And it's an expensive thing, right? You, you got to pay for those misses just as you pay for the hits. And, you know, actually supporting journalism is, I, I really encourage people to do it. Next, we have Joe House and Chris Ryan getting a head start on their holiday eating. Even though I feel like for House, this is more of a year-round lifestyle, um, during their Philly food tour on House of Carbs. In this clip, they share their experience at the Philly restaurant Zahav. There were a couple of of dishes. One, where it was a great moment from for me, we had grilled duck hearts. God. And your boy House takes one bite and goes, that's the fucking goat. Which is pretty funny to hear House call a duck heart a goat, but we speak the same language. I knew exactly what he meant immediately. That's a that's a next level dish because it, you go through a range of emotions eating that. Yeah, duck heart. So it is not just a lean protein. There's a natural fattiness to it, and duck all by itself is is flavorful. Mm-hmm. But this is like it's an organ. Meat. You can also taste the smoke. You can taste those those. The coals on that, absolutely, and and as an as an organ meat, the the richness of it that came through. That's what, and I only took a, a half a bite of the very first one. Now there's they 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 come in a size that you can eat them all. And you just put put them in your mouth yeah. and 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 down them. Um, but I liked. I wanted to get a half a bite of one because I wanted it kind of in my nose a little bit. So I thought by chewing, you know, you can you sure. know how you can get the the flavor into your nose. That's how I wanted it. The very first one, mother, it was the effing goat. Yeah, right? until. <laughs> Until the yeah. lamb came out. I know. And we so we have so this is the thing. This is this is the the uh what's the French word? The denouement, yeah. the you know, the coup de gras, whatever. Uh whatever let, the let the, me tell you something. Peak is. Next time you bring me some food, bring me some tongs. Because they brought the lamb out. Yeah. And it comes with like a fork and some tongs. Yeah. And Tom and Tom was just like, that that's just gonna fall right apart. And yep. he was right. It yeah. was just like this just gorgeous piece of meat slathered in this amazing sauce we all we had all the little condiments and all the little dips and all the bread was still sitting there you could make yourself a little sandwich if you wanted to this crispy rice that they had with it that gives it like this little crunch this it was just incredible so uh, the, the thing about the lamb two two elements of it that, that jump off um the page at me in the first place when it's delivered, it is um, it has a glaze. It has a pomegranate uh, glaze on the outside of it. It's dry age, smoke. So it 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 arrives in a heap, and it doesn't look like it is separable. Mm-mm. It looks like you might need to use a knife or a fork or something to to uh, you know break it up into pieces. But Tom says that like you know just take the. So we took the tongs. Immediately, it's falling apart. You're getting. A great gob of you know as much as the tongue can handle. I I drop it onto my plate and I want to eat it with my hands yeah. because that's how it looks. It's a little too hot, but I don't care. I grab a great big gob of it and jam it in. I want the fat on my fingers. I want the fat on my mouth. I want the glaze in my mouth. And and it was it was beautiful. That's Trouble Town too because you get into that lamb and you're like, I'm gonna be here for a while. Yeah, and you forget. You, you, the great dishes are the ones that make you forget everything you've eaten for the rest of the day and everything you got to eat for the rest of the night. And we were like, we were going in, but I think we knew we had more coming. We had dessert. We had everything else. Yeah. So we, 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 
we tackled it properly. We did not annihilate it. Um, we were respectful to it. Yeah. We had our enjoyment with it. I used both hands. I got both hands. You know, I got, I had to go to the bed. I'm OCD, as you know now, spending 12 hours with me. When I, t- I like to touch food with my hands, but afterwards I need my hands cleaned off. Uh, but we went through that, that whole deal. We got through the shellac of it. It was a beautiful shellac on top of That's it. That's a good word for it, yeah. And then we, and then we, we, we were treated to a wonderful array of desserts, none of which the name of who, I mean, I, I can't tell you one name of them. Lo- they did a lot of stuff with Labna. They did a lot of stuff with the all. Like there was an almond cake. Yes. There was a delicious uh, sorbet that had, I think, pomegranate seeds in it, but I'm yeah. not positive. Yeah. And we were just mixing and mixing up the medicine at that point. So we we wrapped it up there at Zahav, but we weren't done. <laughs> we weren't done in Philly. No, that's right. And I, I the last thing I want to give shout out to Zahav is um, the affordability. Now I you can go there and have like a um, a real you know blow out the bank kind of kind of experience if you want, but you don't have to. There were people sitting at the bar solo, just yeah. getting getting themselves a little something before they were heading home. Yeah, and I, I respect the um, the optionality there. Mm-hmm. It, it is it is fine dining, and if you want to go spend three hundred dollars on dinner because you have a great bottle of wine and order you know a dozen different things, by all means go do that. But if you just are hungry. And you find yourself in town, Philly, for business, and you want to go try and experience the Hav. There are 16 seats at the bars, you know, give or take, mm-hmm. from what we observed. Get in there. And if you don't want to spend, if you don't have it, you can't put it on the expense account, drop, you know, 25 or 30 or 40 bucks and have a great, unbelievable transport of me. Yeah. Yeah. In our last clip from The Watch, Chris Ryan and Andy Greenwald are joined by Jason Manzukis, where they spend the episode celebrating their favorite people and projects in pop culture this year. But this clip features one in particular. Check it out. I think I have to put Gail Gadot on my list, mostly because I wanted to Gal use... Gadot? G- Gadot? Gadot? <laughs> Do you mean Gal Gadot? Because you said Gail Gadot. Gal. I'm 100% sure you said Gail Gadot. Let's say it with me again. It's Gal. Yes, but Gadot. Let me talk you through my presentation. Keep in mind, yeah. I am not Jewish, and you are. It's a strong, it's a strong counter. But sure, tell me about this Gail Gadot. She's a she's my travel agent. I like that I can hear Zach laughing from terrific. the other room. Here's the here's the problem with saying that name out loud on a microphone. First of all, you're welcome for taking a risk. Sure, this has been a very safe podcast so far. I read recently that in the correct Israeli pronunciation, it's really all about the hint of the T at the end. Uh-huh. And I was so focused yeah. on getting there. I didn't care about what route I took. Yeah. And I took the wrong one. Oh, yeah. I'm not going to say her name again. But what I am going to say is that every few years, celebrity culture produces someone who is fresh and beautiful and deserving of it, and nothing about it seems terrible. And that's very rare. And Wonder Woman was a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. And her performance was fantastic. And it was a big hit. And I feel like we needed that this year. Yep. And then we got that GQ profile of her where she wrestled Katie Weaver on the sand using her massage training. Oh, I didn't know. I and didn't like see this. fed her hummus. Oh, and it just generally seems like yep. a terrific person. Also seems to have gotten Brett Ratner effectively fired from movies. Yeah, right? So win, 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 win. Totally. And I think she deserves a place, whatever her name is. Here's what be. I'll say. Here's what I'll say about Gal Gadot or Gail Gadot, Why as you, you so call it. Why are you so good at saying Good old Gail. Here's what I, here's for you. And for many people, she will be Wonder Woman. She will be Diana. For me, Mm. she will always be Giselle from the Fast and Furious movies. (laughs) Yeah. You had her first. I I watched her die. And I wept in Fast 6. 
Holy cow. Wow. So for me, yeah. as much as I loved Wonder Woman, yeah. which genuinely loved yeah. Wonder yeah. Woman, I thought it was one of like one of my favorite movies of the year. And I thought she was perfect yeah. and, and effortless in both the action and the comedy. And the comedy. She and Pine were great together. Yeah. Um, she is still, to me, Giselle. Okay, that is it for this week and for this year. You can find full-length versions of all these podcasts and subscribe at theringer.com slash podcasts. Thanks for listening to this and all of our other content. Happy holidays, happy early 2018, and I'll be back first week of January.